Welcome, everybody. I am Rachel Levy-Lesser. And I'm Stephanie Goldstein, and this is Life's Accessories, a podcast about accessories, clothing, fashion, and the stories behind them. We are two friends who love to accessorize and who remember what we wore on pretty much every meaningful occasion, and that is what we love to talk about. You can follow us on Instagram at Life's Accessories Podcast and also on Facebook. You can also email us at lifesaccessoriespodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or accessory suggestions. That is true. It's like our own suggestion box. Please keep them nice. <laughs> I'm kidding. You can say anything you want to us. We can take it. Yeah, but yeah, I mean. No one I said da- anything mean. I dare our listen. No, no one sent anything mean. I'm sure the time will come. It's fine. It I'm will. Ready. But it's like, I'm one of those people, like, I don't know, if you have something negative to say, just keep it to yourself. Why would you write to the constructive, person? Right. Right. It's or, like those people know. that write those terrible Amazon reviews on books. It's so mean. Those can be very mean. I get it on a product. Like if you ordered, let's say a chair to put together and you couldn't put it together. Okay, fine. Right. That's useful. Like, yeah. like if the Allen wrench is missing, that's a problem. That is a problem, <laughs> but that's a problem. Okay. We digress, but we hope you like what you're listening to. And if you we, don't, we hope <laughs> keep it to yourself. If you do like what you're listening to, we would love for you to share this podcast with a friend and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, do not forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Today, we are talking to writer and editor Elizabeth Passarella. Elizabeth is the author of It Was an Ugly Couch Anyway and Good Apple, Tales of a Southern Evangelical in New York which was named one of the best books in 2021 by Real Simple Magazine. Her articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Vogue, Parents, Martha Stewart Weddings, Real Simple, and Southern Living. How's that for a list? She's hit all the major Mm -hmm. media outlets. And can I just say about her first book, Good Apple? I read that when it came out, like in Mm -hmm. part of the pandemic, and I laughed so hard. Um, It was just great. And we were sort of in touch, I think, on Instagram and through the writing world and the magazine world. And she actually sent me an advanced reader copy of this next book. It was an ugly couch anyway, which I was so thrilled to get her book early. That is so funny, too. And I can't wait to talk to her about it. You mentioned some of the magazine. She's also contributing editor for Southern Living and a former editor. Real simple. We'll have to talk to her about that. She grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and graduated with a degree in journalism, like my friend Stephanie Goldstein. (laughs) She got her degree from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Elizabeth now lives in New York City with her husband and three children. Um, Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to Life's Accessories. We're so happy you're here. Well, thank you, Rachel and Stephanie, for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. I'm, I'm thrilled, too. And of course, we're dying to know what meaningful accessory you'd like to talk about today? Well, I show you guys on a screen on my phone because the accessory, I guess you could call it an accessory that I'm talking about is a couch, a couch that belonged to my dad and made its way through our family. And eventually I owned it for several years. Even if I could pan my camera somewhere and show you the couch is no longer with us. The couch has gone on to couch heaven or somewhere, the recycling den. So I can't even show you the couch if I wanted to, but the story of this couch, and this is the title essay in my book that's coming out, is my dad in 1968. 
So he was a bachelor. He and my my mom got married in 1971. So this was before they ever even got married. He ordered this couch from a furniture store in Memphis, Tennessee, which is where I'm from. That's where he was born and raised. And I was too. And he had some family friends who owned a, a furniture store. He ordered this couch. It was nine feet long. So it was really, really long. And it was kind of this sort of almost a mid-century modern shape. It kind of had these narrow rectangular arms. It was pretty low to the ground. And the fabric was really the, the shining sort of detail of this couch. The fabric was a plaid and it was orange and rust and sort of a, maybe a coral color and black and white. It was just every 70s kind of, you know, Archie Bunker color you can imagine in a plaid in this couch. Wait, I am holding, (laughs) and we'll, we'll screenshot this. We have to take a screenshot later, a copy of your new book. You were so generous to send me an advanced copy. Is this, this the actual couch on the cover? Not the actual couch. It's close. Okay. Okay. All right. That is not the actual couch. Okay. Interesting. That couch is like a central casting ugly couch, but the colors of that couch are very, very similar. I have to say, when I was talking to the cover designers and the the book people, and I was thinking, can we use a real picture of the couch? And I'm going to get to this aspect of the fabric. The fabric was velour. It was this crazy, crazy plaid, but it was velour. So it was super soft, which was what made the couch so magical and so wonderful that we loved so much because it was really, really, really soft. And so I said, when when I saw the first draft of the cover, I said, I love that we've got the couch on it. And, you know, we went through a lot of different iterations of what the background looked like. And I said, I love the couch, but you know, it doesn't look as soft as my dad's couch. And that was the thing that we loved so much about it was that it was so comfortable to sit on because it was so soft. It had this beautiful, like soft sort of velvety velour. I said, can we make the couch look softer? And they said, no, because then it won't be as ugly. Like we need it to be as ugly as possible. If we're going to call the book, it was an ugly couch anyway. And we're going to talk about how ugly the couch is. We need it to have that. It needs to feel scratchy and uncomfortable too. So that's where we landed. They said my couch, even though it was super ugly, was not quite ugly enough for the cover of the book. It's an attractive book cover with an ugly couch. Stephanie and I pre-recorded your intro and we were wondering, we said to each other, is she going to talk about the couch? Because this is definitely our first piece of furniture accessory and we love it. Well, I'm honored to be your first piece of furniture. So yes, so this couch, uh, my dad had it before they got married. I, I actually, it lived in kind of their condo, you know, when they first got married and they were young and they had a condo, I think it lived there. And then once my parents moved into sort of their first uh, large house or, you know, adult house, when my sister was probably, I don't know, four or six, and I was a baby and they moved into this bigger house, the couch went and lived in my grandparents' lake house, which was in this little kind of dirt road town in Mississippi. They had this little lake house on this tiny little muddy lake and the couch went to their lake house. And I remember going and we'd sit on the couch and we would you know, talk about the couch and somebody would always sleep on the couch. Cause again, this velour was so cozy and comfortable. It felt cool in the summertime. It felt warm and cozy in the wintertime. And we loved the couch. Like you love sort of a mangy dog or you love your annoying little brother. We loved it because it was comfortable, but we all thought it was ugly. We all thought it was heinously ugly. And my dad, who of course had this just such an attachment to it because it was his bachelor couch and he picked it out and he chose this fabric he would always say to us, oh, one of these days, some, one of you is going to want this couch. And we would say, oh my gosh, dad, or no, ooh, it's so ugly. You're crazy. It's so ugly. No one's ever going to want this couch. And so he would always maintain somebody's going to fight over this couch at some point. So it lived in my grandparents' lake house. 
Eventually it came back to Memphis. My parents moved into a slightly bigger house because my other grandmother moved in with us for the last several years of her life. And we had this mother-in-law's wing on the side of the house and she lived there. The couch went into her room. And so she had a nurse who stayed overnight every once in a while. Her nurse would sleep on it. My dad would always go back there and sleep on it. I feel like I spent more time with my grandmother. I say this in the book. I probably spent more time with my grandmother in those last few years of her life because I would go back there and sit on the couch and it just sucked you in. And so it lived there for a while. And then when my husband and I got married, he was finishing law school in New Orleans And I moved into this apartment that had this big kind of this old New Orleans house that had an apartment on the top floor. And I moved into this place, had this huge living room. And so I took the couch and because we had no money and I needed to take furniture from my parents. I took the couch, but I said, I'm going to recover it. And my mom was like, of course. And my dad said, that's a crime. And I said, oh, but dad, I can't possibly, cannot possibly have this ugly couch in my first married fancy apartment. So we got a slipcover made. My mom and I measured. We hired a seamstress. We got a slipcover made in this like dark chocolate brown velvet. And the slipcover, the seamstress brought it over. She put it on. She tucked it in. She put the cushions in. And it was like the couch became alive and just was like trying to slink out of this slipcover all the time. Every time I turned around, Mm. part of the plaid was showing. Every time I, I would sit on it and get up, the slip cover had shifted or fallen off or slid off. And this was a beautifully made slip cover. It wasn't like right. a cheap job. This woman did a beautiful job, but yeah. the, it was almost like the couch was saying, no, thank you. I would like to show my true colors. I would like the plaid to show. So eventually oh. we left New Orleans. I got rid of the slip cover. The couch went into the garage of my in-laws who had a house in Connecticut. It went into their garage because we couldn't fit it in a New York City apartment. I mean, y'all know, like New York City apartments cannot fit nine foot Mm -hmm. couches. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what we were going to do with it. And I sort of thought, well, that's the end. It will live in my in-laws garage. It will slowly disintegrate. I will just lie to my father and tell him I'm taking good care of it and it will be fine. And eventually he'll die and we'll get rid of the couch and nobody (laughs) will be the wiser and that'll be that. Well, My in-laws sold their house and the garage was getting emptied. And my mother-in-law called me and she said, come get the couch or it's going to the gardener. And I thought, oh gosh, my dad's going to kill me if I let their yard man take this couch. So we were in a slightly bigger apartment at that point. We had three kids in a two bedroom, but we had given the master bedroom to our older two kids. And it did have this really long wall. So we put the bunk beds in and we moved the couch into our apartment in our children's room. We already had a really pretty couch, which by the way, was chocolate brown velvet in our living room. (laughs) So we put this huge couch in my kid's room and my dad would come visit and we would try to give my parents our bed or try to figure out a situation. Then my dad would say, no, 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 I'm sleeping on my couch. So this 70, 75, 78, 80 year old man would come over and he would sleep on his couch in my children's bedroom while my mom slept with one of the kids because he missed it. He loved it. He was so connected to this couch. So it lived in my children's bedroom and it was great. It was where we cuddled and read books. My kids jumped on it. They napped on it. People sat and, you know, talked to each other in that room. It actually was really lovely. And I sort of, the couch was becoming a little bit worn down and the velour was starting to get thin and split in places and the frame of it was getting bowed. And I thought, oh gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do with the couch. I'm probably gonna have to get rid of it. And then my dad died. Mm -hmm. And then I became obsessed with keeping the couch. Of course. Which you do. Of course. Of course. This is the basis of this podcast. We get it. Exactly. Yeah. 
die and you get really weird about their stuff. That is what <laughs> yes. happens. Yes. Things that I think if I had given it away when he was alive and he had sort of given me his blessing and said, great, give it to a new home or put it in Goodwill or whatever, right. I think it would have been fine. But then he dies. And this was December of 2019. And I, the couch became a living embodiment of my father. I just could not Clearly. think of getting rid of it. I, I didn't really know what we were going to do. I thought maybe we would get it rebuilt and recovered, repaired. I'd hire an upholsterer and a furniture person and we'd get it redone. But the expense of that was going to be astronomical. And then in the summer of 2021, post kind of coming out of the pandemic, I guess, when the real estate market got sort of hot in New York, we sold our apartment. And the real estate agent, who was a friend of ours, came in and she said, oh, your apartment's, it's beautiful. It's going to show so well. I love your decorating but we have to talk about that couch in the kids' bedroom. <laughs> and she said, you cannot have that big couch, that enormous ugly couch in the children's bedroom. You just can't. It's huge. It makes the room look smaller. People are going to, that's going to be an eyesore for people. And I thought, oh gosh, we decided we need to get rid of the couch. And again, you guys know, y'all live in suburban areas now where you probably have a garage or an attic. Had I had a garage or an attic, I would have just put it somewhere mm-hmm. and kept it right. and then right. moved it somewhere else. But in New York City, there is no option. I could have gotten a storage space, I guess, just for the couch, but that seemed even crazier than holding on to it. I decided, okay, if I'm going to have to get rid of the couch, what I love most about the couch, which has always been the thing that all of us gravitated towards was this soft, cozy, velour fabric. So if I can't keep the couch, I will keep the fabric. I will figure out a way to skin the couch Mm -hmm. and keep the fabric from the couch. So (laughs) I call my sister. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to skin, I'm going to skin the couch. And I said, you know how it is. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit unhinged. And I look at her and I said, you know how it is when sometimes when people's dogs die and they take the dog to a taxidermy and the dog kind of take the person takes the dog's skin and kind of creates like a little stuffed animal of the dog. And then they can keep the dog forever, like a taxidermy dog. And my sister paused for a second. And she said, are you trying to taxidermy our dad? And I was like, I don't know, something like that. I said, I could just, I can keep the fabric. I can make a headboard. I can make a bench. I can make pillows. I can do something. Right. She's like, okay. She just washed her hands of me. She's like, I don't even know what to do with you. So I did. I, one night I went back, I made myself a stiff drink and I went back with some scissors and some box cutters. I peeled and cut and kind of, you know, ripped the fabric off of the couch and kind of denuded the couch in a sense. And I cried and I feel like it was cathartic. And I kind of let all my emotions out. My kids were so scared of me. They kept walking back to their room and like peeking around the doorway saying, she's drinking and crying. <laughs> and there's, she's got a box cutter in her hand. And there's thread everywhere. <laughs> what is happening? That's amazing. Right. So I did. I folded oh up all of the fabric. I put it in a bag. It's literally in the trunk of our car. You guys, it's still in the trunk of our car. And then we called our building staff and they came and helped get the couch and the final indignity at the end of this story. And then I will stop talking for a second is that our building staff to get this enormous couch out at the elevator and out to the basement, out to the curb to put out with the trash. I went out the next day and the couch is on the sidewalk for trash pickup and they had cut it. They had sawed it in half to try to to get it out because it was so big. of so course. it was like the final just oh. dagger into your heart is to walk outside oh, on the sidewalk no. and it's just folded, literally folded in half. So that's how it ended. But we are really hoping in our new apartment that we are going to resurrect the fabric. I've already got some ideas. I think we're going to make a really pretty bench out of it and have it be in our entryway and my children can sit 
on their grandfather and put their shoes on every morning before school that I think is going to be the final act. Yeah, that's the story of my dad's couch. I think that's incredible. I mean, wow, what a journey. If that, if that, if that, if that couch could talk, right? All the stories there. I know Rachel and I have couches we were very attached to sort of early on in our respective lives, right? I need to reflect for a moment on the journey of that couch. <laughs> I know. I'm thinking of you it's walking outside. I actually wrote an essay once about this. I think for the Huffington Post, I had this dollhouse that was like, I mean, it was my life when I was growing up and I saved it forever and ever. And now my daughter's too old for a dollhouse. And so long story short, I had to take a sledgehammer to it and put it in the trash. Oh. And so that kind of reminds me of the couch. Like for 40 plus years, this thing that you love that represents so much of your life ends up yeah. out on the curb in a trash. Slot and I'm not trying, yeah. I, I get it. I understand how that happens. I think yeah. your idea for the bench is amazing. It'll be a great mm-hmm. conversation piece. You totally get this whole concept of the podcast. You are our people. To bring it back to my couch, and then Stephanie can share hers. I had a Jennifer Convertibles couch, not to brag, (laughs) that was purchased in 1996 at my apartment on the Upper West Side, the two-bedroom apartment that I shared with three other girls with fake walls and the whole thing right after college. And this Jennifer Convertibles, I can't tell you how many people slept on it in it forever. It traveled to grad school in the Midwest to two different houses that I had. I took the best naps on that couch. I tried to do a slipcover too. It was not having it. And eventually when we moved into our, say, our grown-up house here, I had to say goodbye. But I can't nap on a couch like I can on that Jennifer convertible. So that, I, isn't that I so, totally yeah. get it. Yeah. yeah, mine was from my first apartment in Boston and it was, we got it from Macy's and it was on like super sale, not the greatest color. It was this khaki green, but it, it was in my, my Boston apartment when I got married and then we moved to our house house. And actually it's funny because that couch, which was also a sleep sofa made its way to our children's nursery. And yeah. it was just like this wonderful place to sit and read to them or feed them or whatever. It was the most comfortable couch. We eventually did get rid of it. These stories, the attachments, Elizabeth, what do you think about it, these attachments? Well, I, you know, it, I just have to say too, I also had a Jennifer yeah. Convertibles in my first We're apartment. not sponsored and by Jennifer Convertibles. Yeah. I even remember the name of it. It was called the Jenny. That was the style. Oh. That's how attached we were to that. I think it's that, like you were saying, Rachel, I remember the parties that we threw in that apartment. We didn't even have room for a full-size couch. It was like a love seat, but it pulled out into a twin bed. So we could actually have a guest over. It was my roommate from college who I'd moved to New York with. And we had this, it was a 400 square foot apartment. You walked through my bedroom to get to her bedroom. And I sometimes think that was my favorite apartment I've ever lived in. It was Mm -hmm. so tiny. Our sink was like a dentist sink. It was Mm -hmm. so small. And we only had room for this love seat that folded out into a twin bed. But it was so important for us to be able to have all of our, again, our broke friends who could never have afforded to come into New York and stay in a hotel, stay with us. And so I think our attachment is about memories that we've had around these pieces of furniture. It's not just the furniture. It's all of the, it's the parties you threw or the guests you had, or like you said, Stephanie sitting and in your children's nursery and the moments of being up in the middle of the night, rocking them or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's those memories. And what's funny is the rest of the book, I'm There's essays in this book that are not related to apartments or furniture, I promise, but there is a lot of stories, several stories in this book that 
follow our incredibly chaotic and kind of roller coaster path of buying a bigger apartment in our same building because we really wanted to stay in our building. And it was a hoarder situation. So we bought an apartment from an elderly neighbor. She didn't live there. The apartment belonged to her, her late husband and he hoarded and he was a doctor. He hoarded medical supplies and equipment. It, anyway, I won't get all into that whole story, but we, I tell that story in the book as well. And so moving their stuff out, we bought the apartment as is. So we kind of moved all of their stuff out. Talk about throwing out furniture, breaking things down and just putting them in a dumpster. There was no other option. But now as we are finally getting to the end stages of renovating, it's been a very long road, but renovating this apartment and kind of getting it back into a livable condition, we are having to buy a new couch, of course, because the couch that we had in our old apartment doesn't fit in the living room. If I could look at sort of like a pie graph of the amount of the conversations my husband and I have had over the past three months and how much of it has to do with couch, it, it would be an enormous piece of the pie. Because it is so important, especially in an apartment where all of your living does take place in one room, it is a very important piece of furniture. And I think for so long, when we were younger, we were buying Ikea things. We were going to, like you said, Macy's and buying whatever was on sale. I'm at the point now where I'm 46 years old. My children are tweens and, you know, teens. And I do have a little one. They're growing. And we're getting to the point where I think I want to have a couch that is well-made and really nice and holds up and might be able to go to one of my kids some days. You don't hear about that that much anymore. People passing down furniture. A lot of the furniture in my house is my, it was my grandparents or my parents because it was well-made. It stood the test of time and styles have come and gone and come and gone and come back into style. And I, I think too, just like good jewelry or good accessories or good shoes, good bags, Yes, we want to have some trendy things in our lives when it comes to our homes, but we also want to have those pieces that are well-made and stand the test of time and are worth the little extra money. So we are really struggling with that right now, trying to figure out what this new couch in our home is going to be. I'm sitting in my office, which is right across from our dining room, and my dining room table belonged to my grandparents, and then it belonged to my parents. We have new chairs because I think two generations ago, the people were half the size that we are. (laughs) When we host family dinners and holidays, I always look at that table and I think about all the people that have sat around that table and all the conversations that were had. And I love it. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. And it also happens to be a really nice table. If I could pivot a little bit, this book, I loved it. There is for our listeners, the book is, is out now this spring. It's called, it was an ugly couch. And it is a collection of essays. They are hilarious. They are heartwarming. I laughed and I cried. And there is an overall arc, I think, of moving on, moving apartments. I won't ruin it because the story of how you got this apartment and the negotiations, and I mean, it's unbelievable. I was like jaw dropped. Curious how you find the balance of writing with sort of being so funny because you are so funny and humorous and then also digging deep. And how do you find that balance in your writing? And I feel like it probably reflects your life a little bit too, the way you are in your life. Well, thank you so much for those nice words about the book. Um, You know, I don't think you can really go deep and deal with suffering or grief without some humor, without humor in my life. I think I agree with that. Just think that for me anyway, I mean, yes, I do probably to a fault. I am the person who, if there's a serious conversation going on, I'm the one that's going to crack a joke or bring some levity. It's not always welcome. I don't always have great timing, you guys, but 
I do think that, yes, that's my personality, but I also think is we're into middle age. Um, I just don't think you can walk through sorrow and walk through suffering without a sense of humor and a sense of, mm-hmm. of hope also, mm-hmm. and being able to see kind of the, the light at the end of the tunnel or see the goodness in relationships or whatever it is that comes out of those situations. So for me, they just kind of go hand in hand. I do think also this book, I've had people who read my first book, it was a, an, also an essay collection called Good Apple. And people say, oh my gosh, I just laughed out loud. It was so hilarious. I can't wait to read your new book. And it makes me a little bit nervous when people say that because this book, The Ugly Couch Book, I started writing in, in 2021 and my children were still in hybrid school. They were, we mm-hmm. were still kind of, things were very unpredictable. And I do feel like I lost my sense of humor a little bit. Everything felt heavy. Everything felt dark. Everything felt so hard. Family, marriage, kids, everything was just so difficult during those years and I worried that, oh gosh, I've lost my sense of humor. Like I can't make light or make fun about things that I feel like I used to be able to do. Fortunately, I mean, I had a long time to write this book, a little over a year. And so uh, it came back, <laughs> the light came back. I do feel like this book a little heavier. I think I was processing sort of the grief of losing my dad a little bit more. I was walking through pandemic grief a little bit more. I am older there are just more sad things that happen in life as you get Mm -hmm. into middle age. And I worried that this book wouldn't feel like me. It wouldn't feel as light or as humorous, but I do think the humor comes through. And I think the humor is more meaningful too, when it's hard earned, when you've been through some suffering. I think part of that also, Rachel, just comes with age. We can laugh about things that we wouldn't have been able to have a sense of humor about when we were younger, because you just have more confidence about it. I think that's right. Because here's the thing is that we all go through these terrible moments, right? So to be able to find the humor, it just sort of takes a little bit of the sadness out of it. I'm thinking that if we ever end up at the same funeral, either we should sit next to each other and just laugh (laughs) or or not, or not, right? You mentioned your first book, Good Apple, and it's a collection of essays. And you're an essay writer. What do you love writing about essays? I think that's probably all I'm good at. I think I'm a one trick pony. I am the same. We have to talk (laughs) offline about this because I'm working on a new collection of essays. You think how often can I write about my life? Like what else can I say? What do people even care about at this point? I I, like you, Rachel, I mean, I come from the magazine world, journalism world. I've always been in the nonfiction kind of realm. I did not get an MFA. I did not go to, to graduate school for fiction. So it's always been the world that I've lived in. I just think that we need, we need to feel not alone. We need to share our stories. We also need stories, especially essay collections like mine, where I have not gone through. I mean, yes, my apartment hoarder apartment purchase was very exciting and slightly traumatic. However, I have not gone through a a season of addiction or losing both of my parents or something super dramatic. You think about the memoirs out there that are so impactful, things like Educated or The Glass Castle or all of these where somebody Mm -hmm. has been through something really rare or maybe not so rare in today's world, but just really just big. And I haven't, I have, I have suffered in small ways. I have lost people. I have lost pregnancies. I have gone through things, but I think that my life is probably pretty normal to a lot of people in this world. And so I, I think we need stories like that. We need to share the stories, the small indignities of parenting, the small Mm -hmm. hardships in, in marriage or friendship or jobs or whatever it is just because it makes people feel less alone. That's what I love about essay collections. I love reading about other people's vulnerability and being able to read about 
situations that actually are very similar to my life because mm-hmm. I love reading about things that have nothing to do with my life. We all love escaping in some sense, but I really love reading about an essay collection and thinking that sounds exactly like what I went through. And especially because we've all been a bit more isolated over the past yes. few years, right? So to have that person who writes something that's so relatable, you're less alone. So yeah. if I could just tease the book a little bit to our listeners, when you mentioned the small indignities of parenting, I mean, it is <laughs> a chapter, I think that time you lost your kid in Times Square. So yes. readers <laughs> buy the book and find out, we talk about relatable and Stephanie and I, you've been the topic of some of our group texts lately. When I say group text, me and Stephanie are text to each other. Um, <laughs> our the group chapter, <laughs> our group of two, the chapter <laughs> titled funerals are the new girls trips. That was amazing. <laughs> and it's funny. You talk about being relatable. One of the essays in my book, life's accessories, not to plug it, but it's about my mother's funeral and it's about a ribbon that I wore in my hair. But my advice that I got mm-hmm. out of that experience was show up to the funeral, fly across mm-hmm. the country. It's not yeah. weird. And you were kind of saying the same thing. I also yeah. loved how funerals are the new girls trips because they kind of are. We're just at that age. Yeah. We are at that age. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, it's a great title, but definitely so much of your book was so relatable. I liked how you said that you're sort of an everyday person. I guess you'll say you have been through some experiences, but you're right. Nothing like an educated or an in love or something like that. But I feel the same way too. I do think your experience with Lois and the apartment, I was a little bit jaw dropped and you kind of talked about this a little bit, but where are you right now in the process of moving to the new apartment? Yeah. So we bought the apartment and again, I won't spoil too much of the book, but it took a very long time to own it. And so we, we finally owned it in May of 2022 and then we had to empty it, which took a little time. So we did not start renovating until December, December of 2022, we started renovating and there were just, it had, it needed all new electrical, all new plumbing. We had to put central air in because of the way the windows are, we couldn't put window units in, which is of course so typical in New York. The plans and the permits of just getting ready to go took a while. So we started in December. We're talking right now, kind of in late April, May, we are hoping to move in this summer. So we're really close. Um, our contractor has been amazing. And also it's not, it's not huge. I mean, it's big for a New York city apartment, but compared to sort of renovating a full house, it obviously is a smaller project. The big thing, and these are the kinds of things that I feel like people outside of New York would never think about, but it's on the first floor of our building. What is so helpful is that when you're getting rid of, especially all the junk that came out, the furniture that came out, debris, all of that supplies going in and out, you don't have to wait for the elevator which can really add a ton of time onto a Mm -hmm. renovation. We have friends who renovated and they lived on the top floor. And so just, you know, the workmen using hours of the day to just take things up and down the elevator can take a long time. We were able to just open the windows, literally open the front windows out into the street and just dump things out the front window. So I think that saved a lot of time. That's where we are. We are electrical and plumbing and HVAC is all in. The walls are being sort of plastered and smoothed over and repaired as we're talking. We did not move a ton of walls. We kept the kitchen where where it was. The bathrooms stayed where they were. We didn't do grand uh, rearranging of the floor plans. So I think that helped too. We're hoping by the the time my kids start school, fingers crossed, (laughs) at the end of the summer, we will be in. That's great. Well, you know, it sounds like with this first floor setup, you can just shove a nine foot couch right through the window. If you Our new couch is probably going to be even longer than that because our <laughs> living room is like really narrow, but really long. It's like this really mm-hmm. long kind of bowling alley type of living room. And so I do think we're going to finally have a couch that is might be even bigger 
then my dad's couch. Of course, because this is who I am. I just, all I think about is like, oh shoot, should we have kept it? Oh shoot, like darn it. Now we've got this big couch. Should we have kept the couch? We should have kept the couch. We should have just recovered the couch. But I do think it all worked out in the end. We're going to honor him in some way with the fabric. It will make its way into the apartment in some small space. It'll be fine. Um, but yeah, we are, we are going to have a, a mighty long couch. It's going to be, it's going to have a little chaise on one side. Well, so oh, hello. Love I do follow you on Instagram and I did just see some cool pictures of where you are in the renovation, which I love. So can you tell our listeners where they can follow you on social media and also what you're doing this spring, I'll guess into the summer for book tour stuff. I'm probably most, I'm most active on Instagram for sure. And my, um, I'm Instagram, I'm E S is in Sam Passarella, E S Passarella. Um, on Instagram. And I do, I share renovation pictures, kind of updates. And there's a whole highlight underneath my bio that has the story and a lot of the pictures of the junk that was in the apartment when we bought it, which is fascinating and fun to sort of scroll through. Book tour stuff. It's funny when my first book came out, it was the middle of the pandemic and I didn't get to do anything. Everything was Zoom, which is, of course, as you know, Rachel, I feel like that's kind of how we connected was done during that time. I know. um, I am going on a little book tour. I'm starting in Memphis, Tennessee, which is my hometown. And I'm going to my hometown bookstore on launch day on May 2nd. I'm going to Nashville and Birmingham doing some events there with bookstores. And then I'm coming down to South Carolina. I'm going to Greenville and Charleston doing some things there May 15th and 17th. And that's it for right now. The funny thing is, New York is tricky. Like I, I'm from New York. I've lived in New York more than half my life at this point. I've lived in New York longer than anywhere else, but New York is such a big city and there's so many books coming out and there's so many authors that New York is the one place I feel like I haven't really been very organized about getting something together. So I'm going to all my Southern towns, um, but I might do a little party in New York at some point or somewhere in the Northeast. The Southerners have been uh, eager, eager to get me down there first. So they won. That's great. That's fantastic. What fun this has been today, Elizabeth. Thank you so So much for sharing your story. And um, I can't wait to read your book. And I know our listeners will enjoy it too. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. It was really fun to talk to you guys. Thank you. We loved it. I feel like I need a nap on a couch or something. (laughs) 